I'm Rihanna Dillon and welcome to PodPod. We like to talk about podcasts with other podcasters. And this week on the show, we have Marvin Harrison from the Dope Black Community Interest Company, CIC. Dope Black have multiple podcasts. I think the biggest and the original podcast for them is Dope Black Dads. But they also have expanded into Dope Black Mums, Women, Men, etc., across multiple platforms. So that's something that we delve into with Marvin later in the show. But before that, I am joined, of course, by regular contributors, Reem Makari and Adam Shepard. Hello to you both. Hi. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you. I've been downloading lots of podcasts because for the next couple of weeks, I'm not really doing much because I'm having a double mastectomy or actually by the time you listen to this, I'll have probably had it. Hopefully anyway. So I'm anticipating sitting in the garden, listening to loads and loads of podcasts. So I've been listening to Wondry's British Scandal, in particular, The Cambridge Spies. And they've got so much. They've got like 27 seasons Mm. (laughs) on British Scandal, which is insane, from Matt Ford and Alice Levine. But also, I just wanted to give a little kind of ask, a little call out to all the Pod Pod listeners. If you do have any recommendations for sort of slightly more storytelling podcasts, because that's what I think I'm going to be in the mood for, please do let me know your favourites and I'll try and get around to listening to them. But anyway, enough about me. You guys, what's been going on in the world of podcasting? Well, Acast has released a very interesting new feature for advertisers as part of its platform. It has expanded its self-service platform to allow advertisers to buy host-read podcast ads on a self-service basis. Now, it has already had self-service programmatic ad buying for about a year, I think. And essentially what the host-read programmatic buying does is allows advertisers to buy prepackaged 30 second spot ads, things in that sort of bracket, without having to go through like an ACAST sales representative and you know go through the sort of manual process of setting up those campaigns. They can just log into ACAST's sort of portal, uh, upload their ads and and sort of get those campaigns put into action without Acast having to be involved too much in that process. And what this edition is, is basically a similar thing, except for Postgres ads. So they've got a big database, essentially, of all of their podcasts that they have available for monetization with various details about the podcast, with the rates that they charge for Postgres ads. And advertisers can look through that identify the podcast that they want to partner with based on whatever their criteria is, whether that's kind of show category or things of that nature. And they can get that process rolling without having to get in touch with Acast and say, this is the kind of podcast that we want to advertise on. Who would you recommend is best for our campaign? The stated goal essentially is to speed up the process of getting host red campaigns put into action and to make it quicker and easier. Okay. So Reem, what do you see as the pros and cons of this? Because there are a couple of things jumping out to me immediately. I think the pros are the fact that it makes it easier to be able to use host red ads on like uh, podcasts and also to buy them and also discover different types of podcasts. I think the cons are the fact that it kind of limits the creativity and building that Mm long-term relationship because during the podcast show, for example, the panel that I did was with BrewDog. Mm -hmm. I remember. I was in the second row. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And it was amazing having that. Holding a big sign. (laughs) I was being a very, very proud mum moment. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I I very, very much appreciated it. But during during the session with BrewDog, they were talking about their relationship with that Peter Couch podcast and how they were fans of the podcast before. And then when they did decide to run a campaign with them, they really invested into that relationship and they built something Mm -hmm. that's long term and something 
something that incorporated their ideas and at the same time incorporated the ideas of the podcast. And that's what made it so successful is the fact that there was a lot of effort and research that was put into it and creativity. And I think brands think they could just, you know, advertise wherever on a podcast, just throw an ad in there and that's enough. And I think they're they're missing out on not having that long-term relationship and not having that investment into a podcast. That's a really interesting point, actually, and not necessarily the one I was thinking of, but of course, nurturing relationships is so important between brands and podcasts. But I was also thinking about, you know, if you're kind of looking essentially through like some sort of catalogue of podcasters or, you know, lookbook or whatever it is, you will naturally be drawn to the big, shiny, famous ones that you might have heard of. So what about the more independent brands that might actually be better suited, but might not necessarily have the same audience numbers or faces. Do you think that's going to have an impact? Well, actually, I think that this might prove beneficial for those smaller podcasters. Oh, okay. Because a big part of why this is being introduced is to allow smaller advertisers who maybe wouldn't have enough campaign spend to justify getting that much of, you know, an actual salesperson's time to work on that campaign, mm. it allows them to be much more thorough in looking through the entire gamut of podcasts and selecting the ones that they think would be the best fit for their brand. And that gives potentially more opportunity for those smaller, more niche podcasts to bubble up to the surface. All very interesting. Good food for thought. Thank you both. So now it's time for our interview with Dope Black Dad's founder, Marvin Harrison. And this is me and Adam chatting to him. Marvin Harrison, welcome to PodPod. How are you doing? I'm doing really well, thank you. And also thank you so much for, for having me. It means a lot. Thank you so much for joining us. Honestly, this is going to be a really interesting conversation because I have so many questions. Adam has so many questions. <laughs> but first of all, I guess we have to start with the podcast itself, Dope Black Dads. Yeah. And I'd love to know kind of how you started it and how it's evolved since then, because it's been going for a while. Yes, it's so funny being the, one of the mature podcasts in the <laughs> podcast realm because uh, we lasted longer than 10 episodes, basically, really. But um, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, our, our podcast was a, like, it kind of evolved from we had a WhatsApp group and the WhatsApp group was so much fun. We had like these 25 amazing dads who were like talking about all the big things in their life. And the conversation was raw and honest and powerful and funny, like really representing the kind of diversity of what black men represent in the world. And we were like, how do we share this with people without be like breaking the privacy of what it is that we're experiencing because I think the biggest part was that everyone felt safe to speak without it being shared and published and you know normal social media um, faux pas and foul play so um, we were like well if we take the themes and we just talk about it ourselves in a like controlled environment and it's so funny because the first episode was um, in October 2018 and it was so horrible. It was horrible. And I, and I mean that in a loving way, in the sense that we didn't really know how to have a conversation once recorded. And there's this like underlying fear of like what you're saying could be wrong. And, you know, cancel culture is <laughs> none of us want to lose our jobs. And by just exploring our masculinity and the ideas that we have. And so um, there was a lot of fear and also just unknowing of like how to create a really good episode. Uh, and we hired this music studio and kind of hodgepodge it together. But at the end, we all just felt like we had built something in that day. Just like there was a space now for us to share with the world. And the more I think about it, I think the value of our particular podcast was having perspectives of black men in the world in a like considered way, but also still quite raw. And I think the honesty and sometimes the conversations that we have between us don't necessarily get heard any way. So I think actually the majority of our listeners are women trying to understand what on earth men are talking about and thinking, and they use it as like, you know, social research. It, it appears more so than other men because the men are just in our spaces. So they know what the conversation is. That's really interesting. How do you find that sort of data out that you have maybe more women than men listening? 
So our Instagram and our data that is based on our platforms, basically from the beginning since we first started, has always been over 65% women. And so when we started asking women who follow and like engage with us on social media, they were just like, yeah, that's what we want to know. We want to know what's happening. But also they're so proud that men are speaking, that they just want to support. And I feel like women are an incredible ally to men in such ways that we're not really always aware of. And I think that's something that has come out of doing this work that women really drive the, the greatness in men and a few other things as well, but that's, that's the biggest one. Mm. So you mentioned the kind of data that you get from Instagram and other sort of platforms within your sort of network. Has Dope Black Dads and Dope Black as a wider organization always been envisaged as a multi-platform sort of brand? Um, I'm going to say no, because that makes it sound like it was a sophisticated product launched with a, a group of genius minds with a guy's a goal to overcome big things. It really wasn't. It started super organically. It started from the purest challenge of one man, which is me. Um, and then it really just listening and being open to what platforms and experiences people needed that's what really grew it just by listening and that included going to south africa going to the us creating mums women's queer disabled versions like all of those things were just listening to people and you know filling the gap with what we knew but inherently it was never about like a business per se it was always just about how can we help and i think that kind of principle guides us even to this day You've also done video podcasts as well in the past. So why are these platforms kind of so useful for talking about the things that you're talking about? Why is video podcasting, why are those spaces better for the kinds of conversations you have? Yeah, so so video for me is by far the probably the most important. I think people get more out of visual than they do just audio. And I think audio carries better in sort of different situations. But to build the affinity with you, they need to be able to watch you. And now with the fact that many apps like YouTube and stuff have high quality TV versions of their platform, people do watch it. But what it's meant is the threshold for quality content has increased quite significantly. And to do it properly, you've got to spend money. You're not going to get away with spending, you know, less than four or 500 quid an episode, which if you make that across a year, you're really like, if you want to compete, that's not even competing, that's entry really. You can put a camera up two phones up and try and gather it but the limitations will really be seen when you put it on like a tv youtube app and it loses engagement in those environments because you're standing up next to highly produced content by everybody and everyone's got a podcast now so if yours doesn't look good it does have an impact so those early days of kind of point and shoot just happy to be here type production I, don't, I think those days are gone and you've got to come with a bit more quality or at least an original format of how people can digest it. Where's that money going? Just to break it down a little bit. For, you're saying 500 quid isn't even enough now. It, not really, no. I think if you think about the shooting, you might be able to get someone to come and point and shoot with two cameras for like three, 400 pounds maybe. Really the majority of the money is in editing because you don't, you need an hour long clip, uh, a video and a whole, you need 10 minute segments or one or two of those around big conversations that are more extensive. You need a couple of eight to 15 second clips that go on social. By the time you've done that, no matter who you use, whether, you know, for us, we have a, an agency that's based in South Africa. So that allows our costs to be slightly more manageable, but they can't film for us. So they can edit, they can design, they can do graphics and motion. So it means that it's a bit of a hybrid of, production techniques that get us there but it takes a lot of effort it does take more money than most people have accessible to them especially if they're doing their podcast as a hobbyist and for us as a production company it's about making it sustainable because there's no point starting a podcast doing you know three months and then being like it doesn't make any money and so we can't maintain it so we've always built ours really bootstrapped and ground up and then just scaled whenever we have the opportunity to do so and i think our audiences appreciate it for what it is but also our podcast will never be like the love island podcast doing 50 60 million you know downloads that would never be our podcast so we can't go up to tesco and be like hey tesco give us you know a quarter of a million for a season and, and make it really worth our while so it's always just about making it sustainable but for us it's like affinity to a very hard to reach audience that i think is what 
allows partners to want to work with us because no one else can speak to this many men or this many people from our community in one time and know that it's really targeted you know most people have uh, their identity kind of merged into multiple things ours is pretty clear is what it is on the tin and that's who we speak to mm. So in a recent interview with Campaign, uh, you spoke about the importance of brands working with creators and allowing them to sort of curate the right message for their listeners. How do you incorporate that into the Dope Black Dads podcast? And do you get the freedom to choose which brands you prefer to work with? We've never, ever done any outreach, which means that it is very much about sorting through our inbound and most of that is just time and capacity. Like we already have lots of clients through our partner agency, Beloved. So it just means we have very limited capacity to go and go out and say to, we want to work with this company because they're doing sustainability really well. And through our inbound, it's very much about auditing those companies. Most of the companies we're working with, we know of directly, but it's about auditing them because our values say that they can't, we can't be working with anti-black organizations or organizations who haven't done the right things or have been in the news in a negative sense recently. And they can't use us as a way to like repair their, you know, their, their lack of respect for a community. Um, we're not like a fix in that way. So there's always that audit. And then on the next level down, it's really important for us to analyze like what it is that they want us to say and you know there are times where we take briefs and just deliver them as asked um but the, but really we keep pushing them to accept that we know our audience and if you tell us the like five to seven things that are really important for us to convey it's super easy for us to turn that into an engaging piece of content based on just how much content we're creating but in reality um you know most of the briefs that we receive especially if it's media agencies they don't speak to our audience because you don't know how to speak to our audience anyway which is the problem so them trusting us and building that relationship will get much better results we actually did a campaign and we, we to be honest we didn't there wasn't really much route to scope to scrutinize it it was like something we definitely believed in a good organization we supported it we did the campaign and it was part social, part podcast led. And it's just the engagement on it just didn't match up to everything else we did. And it was like quite disappointing. And then upon reflection, every time that happens and you see like, you know, you're normally getting quarter of a million of people liking a social post. And now it's like 5,000. You want to be able to just say to them, look, just let us do it our way. Mm. Because it just, it just doesn't work. Like our audience know when it's like something that doesn't fit us. And if it's done in a way that's not natural to what we naturally produce, it, it really is a challenge. Mm. It's about that authenticity, right? Yeah. And look, the audience are our masters in many ways. And they always tell you very quickly. It's so funny how you go like post the same time. Let's say you post nine o'clock every day. And then that one time you post something and you're not a hundred percent sure about it. Your audience just like the drop off is outstanding in comparison really? yeah just like on Dope Black Dads we have some of our posts that have done like 8, 9, 10 million on our Instagram and then there's some branded things that have done like 5,000 6,000 and it's just like because they didn't allow us to stick to our tone of voice mm. um, and, and marry the um, content into what we do naturally it was like say this message and like it's got to include so much things it's a it's a campaign name it's a company it's a partner it's the prize it's the reward for the audience it's this free free usps and you're like no one talks like this and yeah. everyone can tell so you know my advice to anybody listening is really consider how you introduce the messaging and really three to five points is enough and really think about what those are and then point them to where you want them to go. They know if they're interested. Like I know if I want to, you know, sign up for something, a service, an app or a platform, the second you give me the context as to what it is, I know if I need it or not. You don't have to really sell it into me and tell me the 19 benefits and who the founder is. And, you know, those <laughs> things are, are really ego led. So it sounds like you do know the dope black, dad's audience just incredibly well and that's mm. something that's a real strength for you so when you started expanding dope black into other areas what was your strategy for getting to know the other audiences that you were trying to target uh, I, I would say because someone came to me and said i would like to do what you're doing and i want to represent this particular audiences we allowed the people to speak on our behalf we just mm -hmm. gave them the framework 
And so I can't tell a black woman, a black mother, someone from the LGBT community or a disabled person what the intersectional experience of being black plus is. Mm -hmm. They told me and I just gave my help. And a really good thing is, is that like for me, the whole thing is decentered from what I think. Our job is to be of service to the communities and the people that are developing. More recently, we've evolved how we do things from just identity into passions and experience. So if you think about, you know, football, for example, is obviously traditionally very heavy male working class. And it's, well, what's the perspective of fans from different intersections? Um, and we want to make sure we're centering those. I'd love to hear the perspective of more women in football centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's a massive question around LGBT and the audiences um, when people go into games feeling safe. And it's like, what's an opinion from those communities in terms of how they experience going to game day? And, you know, are they centered and the campaigns that go around them? So we really want to, and also young voices. I'm a huge fan of like, you know, under 18s. And what they feel about something like football. Because I used to debate football in secondary school for hours, mm-hmm. you know, going up against Liverpool and Man United fans and just going, like finding the mental acumen that I couldn't find for science, but I'd find it for Arsenal. And like we <laughs> want to make sure we centre, we want to centre those people. And it's really important that we provide those voices. So I think passions drive more than identity because I think identity is like a recessive way to identify yourself as in like I'm black. And it's not powerful. Like black is powerful, but it's not powerful to sit there and be like, well, because I'm a black man that's 35 and I'm a parent, the world looks at me this way. It's always about how you protect yourself, how you manage your perception. Mm. And everybody is way more complex than that. So I'm a black man that's 35, but I'm also incredibly creative uh, and I'm incredibly loving. And I want to talk about love and I want to talk about the things that I'm passionate about. And I love Arsenal and I, you know, I, I, I love traveling. So when I talk about black traveling and football from a black perspective, now you get a really nuanced, interesting view from a very mainstream idea because everybody travels and a large majority of the country watch football. And you kind of said maybe about a year ago on the podcast, you're like, look, you might have noticed that I'm kind of dropping off a bit now. I'm not really on this anymore because you, you'd given a lot in those initial few years. So you kind of made the choice actively to step away from being on air. But are you still intrinsic to the strategy of the podcast? Do you have kind of meetings with all of the other guys? How does it work in terms of structure and things like that moving on? Yeah, I think one of the gifts is like, is donating the space to other fathers and letting them speak about the things that they care about in their way. Like I feel the blueprint has been set and so many dads now know what it is. And most of the dads that are on the platform creating content regularly are actual real fans of the podcast. So it didn't take very much to be honest. Again, I don't want to act as if like we're sitting there with a mastermind spreadsheet about the next 60 episodes. (laughs) Really it's about one, um, how are you feeling in this time? And that's about the micro and what's going on in your life and in your family. How are you experiencing fatherhood? Very personal. So the personal element keeps you close to the truth at all times. Um, and then there's some stuff around the macro. You know, we've had things around Sarah Everard, Gail Q, uh, George Floyd, um, you know, just big things that happen out in the world. And we then talk about it from our perspective and how it impacts us as individuals, but also our family. That keeps us pretty much constantly going with endless amounts of content because unfortunately the world is an absurd, absurd place, especially the UK are doing their best to feed us constant content. Um <laughs> So it means that we always have a thing to say, but I want to make sure that the people representing it are, you know, there for the right reasons. Um, Because obviously, like in many ways, it's so easy to turn up and with a presenter's mindset. I don't really even want a presenter. Just want a person that is living and trying their best to be a good man and a good father and how difficult that really is from their perspective. So we move the hosts around every now and again, just to freshen it up on a whole. You know, it's the people that lead it. Um, my job is to make sure that it's sustainable and that it's a safe environment to speak. Um, and then just to check in on it every round again and give feedback to the editorial team. Like I do a quarterly review with them um, and just tell them what I feel would be useful, whether it's topic wise or, you know, those types of things. On the subject of kind of changing things up, I understand that a while ago you took the decision to switch from longer form content to slightly shorter form content. Yes. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so we were doing hourly long podcasts and, you know, four of us would jump on a on the riverside in lockdown or come together in a room and just have a conversation about whatever is going on and just laugh and be fun. And then it got to a point where I was like, I feel there's almost like a glossary of information that people are searching for. And then doing like shorter podcasts and publishing twice a week meant that we were getting longer focus points. So we were focusing on a very particular topic all the way through to the end. It also meant that we could talk about more things in a way because we could talk about it from an academic understanding as well as a like what the impact is on family. We was just very, very focused. And it also just meant that we got more completion rates in terms of the audience going from beginning to end, which obviously impacts things like advertising. And so in many ways, it was more of an SEO performance response to us wanting to make sure audiences were listening to everything and having time where people weren't traveling into work to listen to an hour long podcast may not be possible anymore. So for me, 20 minutes and some of them are five to seven minutes became oh, wow. our new way. And actually I prefer it. <laughs> I listen to way more of our own podcast than I used to. I find that really interesting because like you were just saying, some episodes are interview based. Like Adam was saying, those are the, you kind of the, the long ones, but with others, there's just one person pontificating on a subject or monologuing, which actually on paper does not sound like it would be accessible or interesting, but it's so warm and it's such an engaging way of talking to your audience. So mm. with those particular pieces, because I've really enjoyed listening to them, are they mm. kind of planned in advance? Are they kind of sketched out? Are they written? Or is it just kind of a case of putting a pair of headphones on and Marcus say just is going, right, this is the subject. I'm just going to talk about it. Yeah. Just talking. And you know what? I, I do listen to, I've listened to like structured podcasts before and I don't continue listening. And this is my particular style just for me, but I find it really boring to listen mm. to perfectly spoken, um, curated, edited podcasts. I just feel like I want to hear what's happening for you. Like I want to feel like I'm a voyeur in, the mind of somebody more so than these perfectly curated podcasts. And there's a couple that I love the subject matter, but I find the approach quite grating. Mm -hmm. So asking him just to, that's a very brave thing to go to somebody who's not necessarily a full-time presenter and saying, what do you think about this? And just talk about it for 10 minutes. And it's interesting what your inner voice will facilitate when you give it freedom. And so it's been a really beautiful like example of what we can do. And I'm really glad that we've made that approach to it because I think we've been able to deliver a new style of podcast for our audiences. And it's actually shown that we have way more listeners. I think we've like times three our listenership. Um, wow. So I, we changed that format. And oh, I'm not going to say that it's personal because I feel like I'm, I stopped doing it. And then all of a sudden, everybody's <laughs> really But I'll, I'll make it a format and not about my personal contribution. But like, that's kind of like the point. I'm just glad that more people are able to be accessible to it. In terms of that sort of accessibility and in terms of the, the sort of communities that you're building, do you find that there's kind of a lot of crossover in the audience with Dope Black Dads and Dope Black Mums, for example? No, it's actually quite tribal in a loving way. It's in like, mm. you listen to your people for your thing. If something comes over and it's an intersection of those things, like a mum and dad podcast or a question that you specifically want a personal answer for, I think we get the feedback that, you know, I got, I'm listening to this and I've got to listen to this now. But in reality, it's actually, it's actually very much binary. Mm. And I think it's just like you prefer a perspective based on who you are. That's why in essence, it's like, I know there's lots of podcasts being made, but I can always see how there are multiple podcasts around similar topics that grab people and hold them. Because although we're talking about blackness from a different perspective, it's like, if that perspective connects to you, yeah, you'll listen. But if not, you probably have never listened to an episode. Uh, maybe just focus on clips and things like that, which is interesting. That's why the social consumption is so important and also so different from the podcast. So do you see social media and podcasts as sort of distinct channels, you know, within the brand then? Yeah, but they're separate. There's no, there's no correlation between what the people on the podcast listen to and what the people on social media listen to. In fact, they get two completely different experiences and most of them couldn't reference, you know, which episode that social media clip came from. 
So and I think this is why I think it's important that when you're creating content, you're really thinking about it in a broader sense. And so our approach is like we have a, we used to have an hour segment and that was one format and that would go on YouTube and then it will go uploaded to eight cast. And the second segment would be 10 minute long. And we wanted to make sure that when we did an hour long segment, anytime we can break it down into three 20 minutes or like four, five, 10 minutes and each of them stand alone as segments. And then from those 10 minutes, you need a 30 second less or sometimes eight to five second clip. That's really impactful. And then what happens is, is that you build those social audiences and a portion of them will transfer to the podcast but really it's about monetizing those social audiences because now you build an audience for your tone of voice on instagram for example or tiktok it's not to say your podcast has is the base of it but it's not the end point of it the end point is the platform that is being shown on which is instagram tiktok i heard you talking on wasn't a recent podcast maybe about a year ago where you were sort of talking about how on a Zoom call you started to kind of like break down. You were like crying on a Zoom call and you were like, actually, this is a moment where I need to be really like recognise a bit of self-care and kind of be really aware of your mental health. We've talked about this on PodPod before about the amount of heavy issues that podcasters are expected to talk about and Mm. share and divulge and everyone gets incredibly personal on Dope Black Dads. Mm. How do you kind of ensure that there is like a really good level of mental health awareness despite, I know obviously just by talking about it, that's a huge factor, Mm. but actually then you're having to sit with what you've just talked about. No, I I think sharing things without boundaries is toxic and careless for you, mainly. Boundaries is a really important thing. Like, you know, I used to talk on the podcast in the beginning and really I was just sharing what was happening because I was constantly astonished and intrigued and amazed about my evolution as a man. And, you know, you realize that there are, it's not about you and what you have the capacity to withstand. It's actually the people in your life. And then inherently it brings your children into your stories, your partners into your stories, your, you know, my brothers and sisters by proxy of me talking about my father, my life growing up, I introduced their life to other people also. And so I think the boundary of separating what's important um, to add and how much detail you give. And I feel like when that happened, I think I was on a, um, I was having a discussion with, I was doing a live session with um, a council in London. Uh, I think it was Havering or something. And we were talking about my family needing council services at a particular point. And so I just launched into this story of like, yeah, like I've observed my mum definitely going to housing associations or different support networks trying to get more support for us as a family. And I just remembered how hard that probably was. And there's all these people here who work in these organizations. And I was saying to them, you don't know the impact that you have on people's lives because to you it's a job, but to them it's their ability to provide for their families, keep their family safe. They need you. They need you to maintain empathy. You can't tune out because your people have you know yelled at you last week. You've got to maintain certain things together for what your job is. And it got me really emotional thinking about my mother. And clearly, you know, that wasn't planned. But I was like, you know, that's not something I'm beholden to at this point. Like her sacrifice has made a life where it's possible for me not to be super reliant on, you know, government support services. And I think you know, that's a cost, that's a sacrifice. And I think that's a really important thing and it made me emotional. So you do need boundaries, otherwise it can create, you know, challenges in a way that I think for not only your wider family, but just for yourself, like you start informing people on your life in a way that is not, I want to say none of their business. It doesn't want to sound like an abrasive line, but it's just like, it's for you. It's your gift. It's your lesson that you had for yourself, not for for others. Mm-hmm. And when you get your guests on and you do have these different formats, do you find that some prefer an audio format over a visual one because that gives them a certain amount of anonymity when they're talking about these really intimate subjects? Or do you find that actually in this day and age, people don't really care and they're happy to be on both? Yeah, I think people are happy to be on both. But I do think when you're able to recreate a conversation that's normal as much as possible. So podcasts that are face-to-face are by far the most transformative of the ones that we do. Having a camera on, and even if we're not using it, allows eye contact because you've got to be able to see how the mood shift in questions. And if people are, you know, showing in a different way that they're emotional, I think that's a massive part of connecting to each other to create a connected podcast out in the world. So I do think that's an important thing also. Mm -hmm. 
this is a slightly tricky one because people don't necessarily always want to talk about the negatives of things. But mm. when you're doing a podcast that's about advice and especially your men giving advice, I can imagine that attracts a whole lot of criticism as well. So was there any of that at the beginning of doing your podcast? And if so, how did you combat that? How did you sort of deal with that? And did you take any of it on board or actually was it all just you needed to move? Ignore it. Yeah, I think whenever we've got critic fe- critical feedback, it's always been something that we probably know and mm-hmm. understood in advance. I think sometimes when just doing a podcast for a long time, you just lose that reason why a little bit. You come mm-hmm. off track, and it can become a bit of a job if you're not enjoying it. If you're like constantly paying out money, like if it's not super profitable in the early stages, you kind of like feel like I need to say things that's going to get loads of followers. Like it's just like you have days like that where you start overthinking what it is that you do and so most of our feedback is like you could do better and we agree like and I feel like we've never had a like almost cancelled moment because firstly like the rules of our group and our community are very much we're not anti-white we're not anti any of the identities that are living alongside us in any way shape or form we don't center women in our challenges so we're not like a podcast that's going to sit there and be like, oh, this mother did this. Like, you're not allowed to talk about women in that way. It's like, what did you contribute to the situation? And I feel like what that does is it shows the audience that men can have healthy conversations about accountability, but also tell their story. Even if they are having a hard time with the mother of their child, it's not centered on the woman doing something. And I'm this angel. We won't allow it. It's impossible. Like women don't turn around and like stop men from seeing their kids for no reason there's a reason and what's the source of that reason and what can you do to fix it even if it's not your fault so i think that keeps us in the the right side of what we believe in and really for me it's like men can't do the work by projecting on other people as the problem it's got to be centered in us every day what are we doing what didn't we do and then you start to see incremental growth like i've seen what's happened for so many of the dads by just being consistent and being honest and being transparent uh, in their families and having the right language for the things that they're experiencing. Beautiful things happen. On the subject of the good works that your podcast uh, has been doing, you've recently partnered with Prostate Cancer UK to raise awareness of prostate cancer within your communities. What role can podcasts play in helping amplify campaigns like this, do you think? For me, I think it's like a really good opportunity to expand on what the things are at heart. So we know that one in four men will have prostate cancer in their lifetime and it's twice as likely for black men. And they are investigating what that could be. Is that us genetically? Is that just social stigmas that stop us getting tested Like, do people know where the prostate is? These are things that until you reach mid 30s, 40s, why would you be introduced to this information? And who would tell you? Because, you know, traditional media doesn't impact black communities in the same way because many of us have affinity issues and trust issues with many of these major platforms. So we're not going there for updates on our health mentally and physically. Whereas if I think about what role we can play is that you know, when we talk about something, don't think that we haven't gone to prostate cancer and asked them robust questions. We didn't just take a fact sheet and read it out. We were like, excuse me, well, why is this? Is this because you're not investing enough? Is that you're not doing the right thing? Is it the NHS? Is it the government that we ask the questions? And so we do the scrutiny on behalf of our people. And I feel like, you know, the prostate cancer one specifically for me was a big one because I'm entering that phase of my life of my health will soon be out of my hands. Like time starts to take over. It's just a time issue rather than like, what did you do this year? So I want to make sure that my contribution to men like me is that we live longer like so many black men die young like so like 50 and just dying from what appears old age but it's just accelerated life it's like life is so hard on us that we never really get a chance to ask us like how do we feel and you know like what's happening with my prostate what's that feeling inside me because you're so busy making money and being a dad and a husband and a community leader and like the best employee ever or the best business owner ever it's just like these insurmountable like things that men are meant to overcome and it comes at the cost of our health and for me that's not acceptable so prostate cancer is huge it's the number one you know killer for men in terms of cancer we have got to do something. So it was great to work with them and it was an honor. We'll we'll just keep going. I don't really care about the campaign timelines. I'm just like, (laughs) we'll just keep going because it's something that's bigger than, you know, campaigns. 
I saw on Twitter today Colin McFarlane, who's a black British actor who has been uh, diagnosed with prostate cancer. But he's kind of done this incredible post where he's like, I'm absolutely fine. I caught it early. No treatment needed. No symptoms, no pain, low risk. Just do what I did and get it checked. Mm. You could be lucky. And I was like, actually, that's an incredible. How often do you hear those stories? Like, that is an incredible. I just loved that because the support that that gives you that little nudge to be like actually it's because i think so much of it is fear mm. right i think for for a lot of people not going and getting checked is there is fear as well as not yes. having time but actually that's such a great story that everything was fine but what you have to understand is like the, the even the idea of how you check your prostates which is two fingers to your prostate through your rectum now mm-hmm. this is something that has been a stigma as long as i've ever known it's a punchline in jokes for yeah. comedies and everything and a lot of that comes from inbuilt homophobia. A lot of that mm-hmm. comes from attitudes towards our own bodies. And if you think about the homophobia element, where does that come from? And mm-hmm. I was talking to the team there about where some of these attitudes come from. And I'm Jamaican and some of the attitudes from towards homophobia in Jamaica are some of the worst in the world at mm-hmm. times. But like, it's the correlation of like what happened in slavery and how slaves were managed and, and, and degraded. Mm-hmm. Um, has made that the ultimate sign of weakness. It's made something that you fear to be associated with um, a low tolerance to. And we don't talk about the global impact of Britain going out and inserting these ideas and controlling people in a particular way and what the impact is hundreds of years later. We kind of act like, well, slavery was over. Britain has moved left out, moved out since 1964, I think it is. So it's none of our business. It's literally your business. You created yeah. that culture. And so often these things being inserted into us, and this is what the challenges of having these foreign ideas injected in without the structure and education to go alongside. And now we're trying to claw back humanity from generations of black people who we're just losing fathers, like like hand over fist to a whole bunch of things because of some of these ignorant attitudes. Because mm. Colin McFarland is part of this campaign that you're working with Prostate Cancer UK on, right? Mm-hmm. He's a really important figure. He's a great guy. As well. We interviewed him. And I and I, I kind of just like could you could you just be an, a man around me like can we be friends? <laughs> what does the podcast element of the campaign look like? How are you kind of tying the podcast into your other sort of channels to bring this message across? Yeah. So whenever we work with organizations, we send them basically a mix of platforms and what we can do and touch points and what we think the impact will be and the rough type of audiences will be for each of them. And so the podcast is by far the most used platform of everything that we do and all the touch points. And I think it's because the time that people get to discover a topic. So uh, Colin and I just sat down and we discussed prostate cancer as a whole in terms of some of the myths and some of the experiences, but also his story, like him coming here and going to private school and, you know, the relationship with his father and family and why his, you know, wife and children are so important to him, just humanizing these things that happen to us as men. And so that has been really, really beautiful. So it's really just a conversation of all of those things, plus, you know, demystifying some of the stigmas and just a really good story of a really good man. And I wish I had more time with him, to be honest, because I think he has way more to share. And it's that type of man that I think doesn't get centered often enough. And we need to hear from them because the black archetype is always these sort of, I don't know what I want to say, like this like top boy cultured black man. And it's like, yeah, but also there's a black man that went to private school. He's one of the greatest actors and voices that we know. Really kind of amazing person with his wife and children. And, you know, we need to honor them too. You mentioned that you're a strategist by trade. What are your future ambitions for the wider Dope Black network and for the Dope Black Dads podcast itself? I'll be honest, I, I don't have one I, and, I, and I don't want to create one. And because it wasn't built with strategy, I don't want to insert a strategy and dehumanize everything that we've built. So my job is to listen to where the tone of voice that dads need and the questions that are arising, staying close to social media trends and what Black Twitter is saying and making sure we're answering and honoring everyone in our community from it. So it's more like value-driven rather than strategy-driven. Like for the rest of all the spaces and communities that we own and operate, it's very, very much about how do we represent the people who are not heard and not centered in a particular topic? Um, and so when we talk about football and we talk about business is who isn't being heard and what do they need? 
and who can be our partners in you know sending those messages so we're going to partners more proactively as of now because we want to work with very specific people on specific things and that will allow us to really honor the needs and i think for us it's always just about what can we add i don't want to just have a conversation i want to be able to say right off the back of this podcast and this topic that we've discussed we're now working with x bank and we're going to do a cohort of uh seeding group so that we can help them build their non-profit their business their organization and we want to do stuff in the real world not just talk about it so action is a massive part of our philosophy across the board and i think i look forward to you know the next couple of years we we really want to be more actionable and you've also written dope black dads you've there's a book coming out is it come out or is it coming out so i i wrote it and then immediately didn't want to put it out oh, um, interesting. Much, much to the joy of our uh, my publisher but like it, it for me is that like it doesn't translate in the same way okay. it doesn't translate like a book is such a finite thing to, to to create and even when i wrote it by the time we got the offer wrote it and went to go put it out most of it just didn't it was out of date we just moved like the principles of blackness are constantly evolving and i didn't want to try and squeeze it into a, a 11 chapters and then have you know not serve black people properly like i genuinely was showing it to people and they were like oh it'd be great to add this and i was like i know but like we run out of words yeah i feel like it it may not come out in that way but i think they will be turned into podcasts mm-hmm. as an ongoing series of like on-depth insight into a particular subject that would make me incredibly happy because i think we can just keep going and building on it rather than it just end so that's a definite possibility or it could be again some sort of visual series so we will bring a version of it to life but the stories were powerful like tiny temper gave us his story arise from jls gave us his story like incredible people wanted to contribute and i was like i don't want to dishonor anybody by narrowly presenting what they have lived so yeah it was important Fantastic. Marvin, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute delight to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Hopefully we'll do it again soon. We'll do a catch up in two years time and see if it's all going well or if I'm crying into my soup. We'd love that. <laughs> We'd love that. Hopefully the former, but who knows. Thank you so much. Brilliant. Cheers. Thank you. So that was Marvin Harrison. Really interesting talk. And I wanted to ask you guys about the Dope Black Network mm. of podcasts. And do you think that's something that other podcasts which have a specific target audience in the way that it's Black Fathers, for example, should they be looking to roll out this sort of network where it, we go into other areas like women, mums, etc.? Or is there a danger that it might water down the original podcast? Reem, what do you think? I think it's a combination of the audience and like him nailing a format it had enough purpose for it to expand into other networks like Dope Black Moms and all different podcasts that they've done because he saw that there were people listening and people needed to hear this and people were engaging. Why not expand it to other people within that community that also need representation and also need people to connect with? And I think that's why it worked. I think if you have a purpose and you have a good format and it works, it makes sense to expand it to other communities. I think it's something worth considering and going for and building up a network. Yeah, absolutely. I think as well, one of the interesting things about Dope Black Dads and its associated shows is that they were started kind of organically, not by Harrison and his collaborators on Dope Black Dad saying, oh, you know, this is another area that we could look into serving. It was people coming to them proactively Mm. and saying, hey, you know, we really like the show. We'd really like to take the format and the template and apply it to our own experiences or rather apply our own experiences to, to it. And I think that is the most authentic way to to approach expanding into other areas you know podcasting in general is so built on authenticity but particularly podcasts like this that are serving kind of communities and speaking to lived experiences having them be proactively driven by people from those communities with those lived experiences seeking to start them is a much better route into it 
I think, than identifying it in a strategic way. And something else actually that kind of really struck a chord was when Marvin was talking in detail about the need to mix up the podcast format, because I sort of feel like we're told consistency is key in podcasting. Mm. But also he was saying how even he has been more likely to listen to the newer bite-sized episodes. So if your podcast is dropping in numbers, do you think it's worth having a massive overhaul or to keep at it because familiarity is key. The nice thing about podcasting is that there's room to experiment and you have mm. freedom to experiment with podcasting because it is mm. your own mm. and you're allowed to do that. And <laughs> if you can, if you see that something is yeah. working, it's good to keep up with that. And then if you see that your numbers are dipping and you want to try something new, you just keep trying new things until something else works. It's not the same with other mediums where you have to kind of follow strict rules or Mm. you have to be a lot more consistent and has to be approved by many different people for Mm. you to actually get something through. Because I think it's just your own project. You have that freedom and it's really, really nice to, to be able to experiment. Yeah. Is there a danger of listeners dropping off though, Adam? I don't think so. I think the audience is very forgiving Mm. with podcasting and, you know, very forgiving of experimentation. And going back to the point about authenticity, I think particularly if it's a format change or a structural change that, that you feel is, is necessary or that you feel is going to improve the, the podcast, listeners are by and large very willing to take a chance on it. And the best way to do it, in my opinion, is to be very upfront about your experimentation and to do it as a pilot project. You know, if you're planning a new format, release it as a bonus episode. Mm. They hate it. They'll tell you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, they yes, they will. They'll leave comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also using tools like Apple Podcasts, uh, listen through rates can be really useful for tracking whether or not things like format changes are effective. You know, if you introduce a new segment and you notice that like 70% of your audience are skipping past Mm. it or just dropping off entirely, maybe that segment's not great. That's yeah, maybe it needs a bit of work. That's good. That's a good piece of practical advice. Because for my part, you know, listening to the Dope Black Dads podcast specifically, I really enjoyed the interviews, but also I think we can go anywhere for interview podcasts. Whereas what I love mm. hearing is specifically the, the the black father experience, because that's not something I can find in many other places. And as, mm. as I think Marvin was talking about, so many of his listeners are women and because they're, they're, they're accessing something that they don't normally get to access about, you mm. know, f- like, emotions around fatherhood specifically from black men Mm, that was a really interesting point i thought yeah and it's so true because you know i'm not a parent and i'm also not black and yet i really loved hearing the experiences that these men were talking about and could relate really hard in some regards as well so yeah Mm. i think that was a really wise choice of them Adam, Reem, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going to be recovering. Like I said, if you do have any podcast recommendations, please do send them my way. And I'm sure all of our listeners will join us in wishing you the best of luck with your operation and a speedy recovery. Thank you so much, Adam. Thanks once again to Marvin Harrison for joining us on this week's podcast. You can find out lots more on podpod.com and everything that we were talking about in the intro will be up there as well. Sign up to our daily email bulletins and you can follow us on social at podpodofficial. The podcast is produced by Emma Corsham for Haymarket Business Media and I'm your host, Rihanna Dillon, and I will see you very soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.